Hey friends, I'm Renee. And I'm Anna. And you're listening to Fangirl Happy Hour. We have a super exciting episode today. We're interviewing the brilliant and prolific Kate Elliott, author of 10 zillion books. We're going to ask her a bunch of questions, probably get derailed at least six times, and mostly bask in her wonderfulness. Yes. I am so excited about this. Are you excited about this? I'm so excited about this. Before we get to it, though, we should totally mention that we had our 50th episode and we forgot to mention that. We really, really did. Yeah, such a milestone and we completely missed it. But I guess episode 51st also has a ring to it, no? It does. And plus, we can just pretend that we're celebrating episode 50 by having Kate Elliott on. Yes! Yeah! Woohoo! Good idea. That was totally the plan. The whole time. Kate Elliott is the author of 26 books, many of them super massive and emotionally destructive. Every time a dude bro on Reddit claims that he doesn't see gender and he chooses books to read free of any cultural influences, she gets another idea for a book. She's up to 6,271 ideas. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here as always with my lovely co-conspirators. I'm pretty sure that at this point you've been on our show three times. This is going to be the third time. That sounds right. But have you been on any other podcast that many times? No, I think this is the most. Take that all other science fiction and fantasy interview podcasts. We are now the official Kate Elliott podcast. Yes. A thousand space bees. <laughs> so to start off, we would like to ask, who is Kate Elliott? And what do you do? Someone else asked me this question recently, and I wasn't really sure how to answer it because A, Kate Elliott is uh, a pen name, but I'm not going to discuss my real name. Because it doesn't really matter because my entire social media presence is under my pen name. So it's like I don't exist in my other life. Kate Elliott is a construct and a persona. And she's basically a way to present my books, a name behind which my books enter the world. So she's a writer. And for myself, I would define myself as a writer and as a, as a mom. And I was reflecting a lot. This is like a total digression and a total tangent. I was reflecting about how little as a child I was able to and allowed to identify with social constructions of femininity. And that the first time I've ever totally felt that I could say, yes, I'm a woman was being a mother, which is one reason besides the fact that I love my kids beyond anything that I really identify with being a mom is because it was like, that's like the first time I got to fully be how society constructs a woman. And, um, and then I'm also an athlete and someone who likes to be active and outdoors. And I, right now that's function and outrigger canoe paddling, which don't even get me started. Cause I could talk about outrigger canoe paddling for like hours. That's it. 
you know, since you write under a pen name, how does that influence your sense of self then? I know that you just talked about that, but would you, do you see yourself as a different person? No, I, you know what, Kate Elliott is a mechanism. You know, my first four books came out under my real name back in the 88, 90 and 1990. And when Jerron was taken, when, when my then agent and I were trying to sell Jerron and Daw made an offer on it, At that time, back before Amazon, this was pre-Amazon, that's how long ago this was, that chain bookstores were kind of the, the kings or queens or rulers of the marketplace. And they had recently instituted these centralized computer ordering, which meant that when a new book came out or when a new book, when, when publisher sends out sales representatives... Back in those days, I don't actually quite know what they, how they do it now. But in those days, they would send out sales representatives to, to bookstores. And when the centralization happened, then instead of regional and local areas ordering what their marketplaces wanted and what they were selling in their marketplace, then suddenly a regional center, say in New York City, would be ordering for everybody um, in their chain, which is easier for the, the chain bookstore, but may not you know, may not be the best way to order for a particular market um, because the different local markets are going to have different things that they like better. And the local bookstore people are going to know that. Um, but anyway, it, t- it turned into this centralization. So at that time, if a sales rep brought in a list of books and said, here's the five books that we have coming out next month. And they would say, well, this book didn't sell very well. Uh, this author's last book didn't sell very well. So we're only going to order X number of copies. Um, for them. And they said, we asked, but this is our lead title this time. We asked, but it doesn't matter. We're only going to order what their last book sold. So when you get caught up in that, they began to look for ways to get around that when a person came out with a new book that they thought would do better than their old one had. And in, and this was the era of um, Megan Lindholm becoming Robin Hobb and a lot of other people, the early, the early days of these complete name changes. So name changes before that were often because you were writing in different genres. So like I have one name for my mysteries and one name for my science fiction, but this was a name change to escape your numbers. And that's what happened to me. When Daw Books made the offer on Jerron, they said, we'd like her to take a pen name because it's easier to launch a new author than to rehabilitate an old one. That's a direct quote. I said, fine, because what I care about is the books. I don't really care that much about the name. The name is a vehicle. It's a mechanism. It's a thing you put on there that people attach um, importance to. So for me personally, no, it's still me writing the books. So yeah, that's how I became Kate Elliott. They, they, earlier books had been my High Road trilogy had been the fifth book of five books that Bantam was publishing. So it was the one at the bottom of the list. So the sales rep would say, oh, look, this is our lead title, this hardcover by, you know, Dude Man. And then here's our second lead, which is our paperback um, reprint from last year's hardcover by this uh, respected person who sells well. And then here's our third book would be like um, our literary book that we're you know, is our prestige book. And then the fourth would be like an anthology of short stories about some theme. And then the fifth book was me because I was like the, the paperback original that they put out, they pay almost nothing for, they put out and then they throw it against the wall. And every once in a while, one of those books will stick and kind of break out, but mostly they just kind of sink. Right. And actually, ironically, ironically, because the market was so different then. The sales numbers that the first High Road book, Passage of Stars, 
like six weeks after that book came out, they called me up and said, oh, well, based on the sales of this, and even though the other two were scheduled and did indeed come out within that same year, um, they said, based on these numbers, we're going to have to not take any more books from you because the sales aren't strong enough. If I had those sales numbers today, me or anybody else, they would be considered phenomenal. Wow. how much the market has changed. Well, maybe not phenomenal, but they'd be very strong. People would be super pleased with the numbers that that book, which I got dropped for, for those sales numbers. And it went into a second printing within like a month, right? One book, one of the chain bookstores, because there were used to be a lot of chain bookstores back in the ancient Neolithic of book selling. Um, one of the chain bookstores didn't even carry it. So that was even despite that. So it's just the marketplace is so different now. So then when Daw wanted Geron, they wanted it to be their lead title. But of course, that's, and that's why they had to change my name, because the chain bookstores would have said, well, we don't, you know, that's not good enough. We don't care if you're making it, if you're a different publisher and it's a different book. We can only judge based on what your last numbers were. So after all the struggle with sales and having to change your name, why did you keep wanting to write science fiction and fantasy? I don't have ideas for anything else. That's the honest truth. I mostly read science fiction and fantasy. I sometimes I don't I don't read that much mystery. I'll read like one mystery a year because it interests me, but it doesn't resonate with me. So uh, something really well written that's a mystery I can read, but but I'll read one and then that'll be enough for me for a while. I will occasionally read foreign novels translated into English because those are books set in places that are that's kind of like fantasy and science fiction in the sense that it's showing me a place that I don't know. But I really read almost, it's very rare for me to read like contemporary novels because like I live here. I'm just not interested in reading about that. And also because I just like the things that go with science fiction and fantasy. Like how many times have I read, picked up a mystery and started reading it and a third of the way in, I'm like, you know, this would be better with some ray guns and dragons. What if some griffins showed up? You know, I, I guess I'm just a lowbrow genre reader. I just like lurid adventure fiction. So that's why I write it. Where do you get your recommendations from? How do you find your next read? Oh, like in even in the field. I just want to say that even 10, 12 years ago, I struggled to, I would often go back in the days when there was still borders, I still cry about that, that, that they're gone, because they had a store, a really good, a good store close to us where we live now. I would go down there and, and browse the bookshelves at least once a month. And often I would leave without finding anything I wanted. Now I can't keep up. I look for what people are talking about. I look for how they're talking about it and what it is about it that interests them and that they're excited about. I have certain people who I know their tastes don't really mesh with mine. So so those people will look at what they're talking about and I'll think, okay, maybe I'll, I'll look at that maybe. Then I have other people whose tastes are much closer to mine who I'll listen to. I try to read books by people I meet. Um, I try to read books by new and up-and-coming writers to see what's going on. I don't always like everything I read, and that's fine, too. I, I can read something and say, this wasn't really for me, um, but also see why other people would love it. So does that, and I read, and I read um, book blogs, which I prefer to places like Goodreads and Amazon, to be quite honest, because with the book blog, I, I think Amazon and Goodreads have kind of changed the fabric of how we, we go about looking for fiction. Um, but book blogs, I can have a sense of who that person is and the kind of things they're reviewing and what they like. 
And unlike other parts of current events where it's important to get a wide range of information so that you're not getting information funneled only through um, people who think exactly like you, when I want to read a fiction book, I'm looking for a book that I will enjoy. When I read nonfiction, I'm looking for a book that I need that will either, that will A, that will keep my interest, but that will teach me something or that I can learn from. So I'm looking for nonfiction books in a different way than I look for fiction books. And you know what? I don't read fiction to improve myself. That I may improve myself because the book is profound and, and shows deep truths about people is fantastic. But I can also enjoy a fiction book that is just just for enjoyment. So I kind of look for that. I look for people who I can see have the same tastes as me or who are not the same tastes even, but who are looking for the same kinds of things I am. Because sometimes I run across a book that I might not have found otherwise that absolutely works for me, whether or not it's science fiction or fantasy. So I'm always trying to look also for things that are outside my typical reading, and then I'll try them. And again, it may or may not work for me, but I find the best books that way also because they're unexpected. So you like to read book blogs, and because you've been in publishing for so long and online, probably for the life of the book blog. Oh, longer. I'm, I've been online since before the World Wide Web was an actual thing people were using. I mean, it was it was it existed earlier. I got online in 1990 when there were just like bulletin boards. And the earliest I remember people talking about this thing called the World Wide Web. I remember when you could first go and access these. Now, to us, they would seem laughably primitive pages. It's my that's oh, that's not that long ago. It's amazing to me. Everything has changed. So how has criticism and discussions of books changed from the beginning of book blogs, which I think of as late 90s and now? Wow, this is a great question because I'm even going to go farther back than that. Um, My first novel, Labyrinth Gate, published in 1988, got five reviews. I want you to think about that number. Five reviews that I ever found. I mean, there may have been more, but that I ever found were five reviews. Think about that. Of course, it was on the bookshelves. So people would go into a bookstore, browse the bookshelves and, and maybe in, in, in libraries. And that was your chance to, to find the book. What it means is that there were many, many fewer gatekeepers and that who got chosen to be those gatekeepers and their biases and the fact that by and large, Back in the day, people who reviewed books presented themselves as objective reviewers, mm-hmm. which means there was no examination of how, of how much subjectivity informed this pretense of objectivity. But if you don't even, so first of all, if you don't even think about this, the idea of objectivity and subjectivity contextually. And you're getting these very few people who are telling you what you should and shouldn't read and why you should and shouldn't read them. The the gatekeeping has an enormous influence. And the biases those people bring about what is worthwhile to read and what is good writing in a larger sense, I'm not talking about the smaller sense of, you know, sentences being grammatically constructed, um, but I'm talking about in a larger sense. This has, this has a massive influence on who is going to be treated and how, what way and how they're going to be treated, who's going to get attention, who's going to get visibility, who's going to get big contracts. And, and if you put a book you know, in a bookstore out in front, more eyes will see it. 
And we also have biases about how we think, oh, this is important. People have said that this is important, so it must be good. Or even just seeing something and picking it up. And it's not that books themselves can't have an impact on that. It's not that a really well-written book may or may not find a great audience. It's not that Toni Morrison isn't a phenomenal writer. She is. She deserved that Nobel Prize in literature. It's not that she is the same as, you know, any, as um, Dan Brown, because she's not, right? I'm not saying that there's no quality. Um, but I am saying that it's a harder, a harder ladder to climb if, you're, if the gatekeepers are not interested in you back in those days. And so what the explosion of book blogs did and why the so-called critics and reviewers went through that whole spasm of bitching about it there were a few, it stopped now, but there were a few years where they could just not stop bitching about it, is I don't want to say it's a democratization of book blogging, but what it is, is an expose of the idea that there is only one way to look at these books, and that the readership brings a many, many different perspectives, and that books may become popular because even if a critic doesn't like them, they resonate somehow with people's experience. You know, I am not someone for whom Twilight was a book that worked, right? I didn't even get past like 50 pages of it, right? And yes, it got a big push from its publisher, but it also worked on some level for people. There are a lot of readers for whom, for whatever reason, it worked. So for a writer like me, book bloggers were hugely important to me, to me in my career, because they allowed writers like me to suddenly get far more visibility than we would ever have gotten otherwise. Cold Magic is a great example for me personally. I'm sure if I went through and counted reviews, you would see definitely in the first couple of years, and, and still, I think this is still so, that the crossover reviewing is what made that book get the, get the visibility it did. If it had never gotten, if book blogging hadn't existed and it had only gotten reviewed within the core SNF community with its girly cover. And it's very, very, I, I'm not a gender essentialist. So I say this not in that sense, but it's very, this very girl woman focused first person point of view and the way she looks at things is culturally, I'm going to say, I hate these words, but I don't have any others to use is culturally very feminine and thinks she's interested in the way she interacts with people. The crossover was what made that book and that series. If it had been up to a few gatekeepers, it would have sunk. What happened was more and more people said, hey, listen, our opinions matter. Hey, listen, you can. And we and we found each other. We could say, hey, we can talk about reading with this person who I have more in common with than this critic who's just going to kind of stand up like I am doing right now and lecturing to me about what I should like and not like. It, the, the amount people are talking about books now online is astronomically greater than the amount people were talking about books 20 years ago. It, to, it makes the, the books more visible too, right? It's not only the conversation, but everything about it. You have Goodreads and you have individual blogs and you have blogs like Tor.com have lots and lots of contributors and you have reviews on Amazon and now you have Tumblr, you have Medium, you have Twitter and it just seems like everybody's talking about books the same way. Although I would just incidentally go back to just one bit where you said that 
the bitching about blogs and the end of objectivity in reviews has stopped. No, it hasn't stopped. There, there are still people bitching about how blogs will bring the end of civilization. They still <laughs> talk about that? Oh, yeah. Well, it, it's on. hard to give up that perspective. It's hard to give up being the authority. Yes. Yeah, and that's what book blogging has, has done. It's not that there aren't still people like who, who don't still consider themselves the authority and who don't still take that position and who still don't deal with themselves and their opinions as if they are objective and, and authoritative beyond anybody else. But we can ignore them now. You know, and we still see that to some extent in, say, the few newspapers that still have book columns. You know, who do they choose? But even they have become... Or, or many of them at least have become a little more sensitive to that. For instance, the New York Times, who hired um, N.K. Jemison to write a monthly science fiction fantasy review column, you know, that wouldn't have happened even 10 mm-hmm. years ago. But somebody saw the need to do it now. And, and good for them, you know, to get a, a different perspective from the, the old guard, white, progressive academic men who seem yeah. to have, have pretty much been the main, the main stream of that, that brand of criticism for so long. Quotation marks on the progressive there. Just Oh no, 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 no. They're progressive <laughs> politically. I oh, I guess. I apologize for repeating myself. I've said this before. The most condescending, sexist things that have demeaning things that have been said to me to my face in the science fiction fantasy field have, I think, without exception, been said to be by progressive men. Would you say that those frustrating experiences have changed the way that you approach publishing or approach writing in any way? Approach publishing and writing. Writing, I don't think so, so much, because I'm still kind of writing the same thing that I always have, which was trying to add a perspective to the books I loved and the adventure stories I loved, but to try to open out, open up who gets to be in them and how how the events are are understood. I mean, that's what I've always tried to do because I always felt that it's long been said that there's a universal experience and people, you know how people talk about, well, you know, this story is about this man going on in his journey. It's a universal story we can all follow, right? But what it really means is that a very particular kind of male story which often European story, but not is considered to be universal, but it isn't. Of course, it's a particular story. It's a specific story. So I've always felt that a universal story would, would be one that, that a, there isn't a universal story in that sense, except for the sense that people have emotions and that we interact with other people emotionally and that our relationships with other people are kind of at the core of how, how and what we are and how we see ourselves and how we interact with the world but beyond that, I just wanted to open up these epic stories and these fantastic stories to a full range of people. I mean, within, and I am myself limited. You know, I have my own biases. I have my own blinkered spots that, that I can't see beyond, which is why we need a lot of different writers. But I can open it up in my own way. And so that hasn't changed for me. In terms of publishing, I'm, I'm a, quite a bit more kind of jaded um, and cynical than I was back when I kind of believed the idea that was being told to us when I broke in that that if you had merit, you would publish several novels and then the next step would be this, you know, level and then the next step would be this level. And then it turned out that it wasn't really true, that that was just what they told you, <laughs> you know, that, that they would pick and choose who got to be treated a certain way. And, and if you didn't get that little star, then too bad for you. 
I now, that's one of the reasons that, that it's for me a great thing to embrace book blogging and book bloggers and a great thing to embrace Tumblr and Twitter and, and Facebook and all these other ways because they help me get around, they help me get around that old ladder, which didn't help me before. And that used to be the only way that I knew of. And I think the only way that existed to make a career. So now there's all these other ways. Now there's all these other paths, um, including self-publishing, which I really, which I haven't really done, but which has worked really well for other people. So it just leaves me open to more possibilities. So you mentioned that some of the grossest things have been said to you by like progressive men who think that they are allies. Has that gotten a little better since like the 80s and 90s versus now? Or are you seeing a pushback to go along with the other dying throes of men throwing big fits on online? I, I'm always reminded of, in this context, of the, the Martin Luther King quote where he says, like, and I don't, I don't have the quote memorized, but he says, he says, I don't mind the people who I know. He doesn't say it like this. He says it much better. He says, it's not the people who I know are against me that cause me the most problems. It's the, it's the ones who, the, the moderates, the ones who say they're for me or who want to be for me, but who actually really aren't. But w- what I find is the people who are just like, oh, my God, women or, oh, my God, those women they shouldn't be writing or whatever. You know what? Whatever. That that really has no inf- effect on me. A, they're not going to read my books. If they are going to read my books, they're not going to like them. I already know that. And the people who, who have even a smidgen of understanding will know that. But it's the ones who talk about how woke they are. <laughs> <laughs> And are they better? Are things better? In in some ways, they are. But, you know, there were a lot of progressive men back in the days who wouldn't have been rude to me and who were supportive. So the discourse is more in your face now. I don't have to sit on panels anymore and hear big names say all writers are rapists like I did. I told that story the first time mm-hmm. I was on, didn't I? Yeah, I don't have to sit on that. Nobody would do that anymore. Well, maybe somebody would, but uh, I'm doubtful. I don't have to hear that anymore. But you can still be a progressive man in this industry who doesn't really listen and succeed. And I have to say, please, my hashtag, not all men. I know so many great guys in this field who really are progressive, who really are supportive. And I don't mean them, but I'm just saying that are things a lot different? In some ways, yes. And in other ways, they don't really feel like they've changed that much, that, that there's still so much focus that, that whose voices do we listen to? Whose voices do we take as most authoritative? To some degree, that hasn't necessarily changed all that much when you step outside the very narrow kind of circular echo chamber that a lot of us tend to live in when we're in certain places online. But if you step outside of that, then all of a sudden, whose voices, you know, who's reaching farthest, who's getting the most notice, that hasn't always changed. It's, it's different in YA, which has been interesting for me now that I've stepped into that field. And I'm not saying that the progressive voices, I'm not saying the progressive male voices are without question all this other way. They're not. A lot of them are doing great things and and are using their voices in positive ways. Um, I'm just saying that the work is slow and change is slow. We can't stop pushing back. So I don't, I, I mean, there's things I won't say because I do feel like I'm not in a position to say them. Let me put it mm. that way. Do you feel like if you say certain things or you speak out, you will have damage done to your career? 
I do worry about that. I don't know if it's true or not, but I worry about it. You know, I've been around a long time, so I get some points for that. But I think one reason that I have survived for so long is that, first of all, my base personality is not confrontational. My base personality is that I'm not, I don't enjoy pushing back at people. I'm not a person who wants to, it doesn't give me any pleasure to insult others. And, and, I, and I actually believe strongly in the, um, the, the Jewish, in, in, in the Talmud, I think it is, uh, the, the rabbis say to, that to humiliate someone in public is the same as killing them. And I believe that. I think when, when people deliberately humiliate someone in public, and there are very, very few exceptions with this, and usually when people speaking to, when we speak upward to people in power who have power over us, sometimes, and you see this it cross-culturally, sometimes a form of ridicule or um, you know plays that satire and things, sometimes those are the only ways we have of speaking out. So besides that thing, in general, I don't like that and I don't like it. So, so because of that, I'm not one to, I would rather find the ways I can connect with people rather than find the ways I can criticize them. I'm also a youngest child, so I'm just so used to being criticized, you know, I was like, and I frankly think that the fact that I do try to be nice, um, and I hate that word is like one that we like to maybe nice, that I try to be kind. And I try to find ways to connect with people. I'm more interested in that than in aggrandizing myself by showing that I'm smarter than someone or that, you know, my ideas are better than theirs. I'm just, that doesn't, that doesn't do anything for me personally. So I do think that if I have been able to show kindness and speak to people, I think that has helped me. I think it always helps women. Uh, and I don't say that in a good or a bad way. I mean, I think realistically, societally, culturally, that women have often had to take that road anyway. If we just look at how often Hillary Clinton is called unlikable. It, it's not clear to me that she is actually unlikable, actually. I think it's just that she's perceived that way for cultural reasons. So I have always taken that path of trying to be cooperative and pleasant. And so I do feel like, first of all, because personality-wise, I don't really want to be like the person who's, you know, if I'm going to be difficult, I'm going to save it for <laughs> for something. But anyway, I, I, I just, I do worry. I am filled with worries. I am an anxious writer. And I guess if I had like a massive career and uh, with multiple New York Times bestsellers, would I be crankier? I don't think so. I think I would try to, I hope, I like to think that I would use that leverage to continue to try to help new writers in and help struggling writers. You know, I like to think I would use it to, to assist others and not to criticize. Going back, you mentioned YA and you have been a YA writer now, officially say, for one year. And how do you find participating in that other community as opposed to the SFF adult community? And how do you switch gears between the two? Or do you? I mean, I don't, I, I myself don't change that much in my own personality. Uh, that I still don't know the YA community very well. I, I'm really, really new in it. Uh, what I do notice is I come across a lot more women. I never have to apologize for writing from the point of view of a girl. 
and then there's never any discussion of whether or not that's an acceptable point of view to have. And that's one of the reasons I did it because it's still, it's less today than it used to be. Um, but still there's, you still hear people saying, well, why did this have to be told from the point of view of a girl? Or why is this a, you know, the girls are always a Mary Sue. I just, I just finished reading um, Scaramouche by Raphael Sabatini and talk about Mary Sue characters who can, everything they turn their hand to is they are the best at ever. That's a classic example. But if, a, if it was a girl, people would be like, oh, please, you know, this is ridiculous. But it's a dude, right? So it's kind of okay. I was on a panel at San Diego Comic-Con. It was all women and nobody talked over or interrupted anybody else. That was a new one for me. Not completely new. I've been on panels that were like that, but it's so common in science fiction and fantasy to have these people where you they, they talk over and interrupt because they just can't wait their turn because your words are so meaningless to them that they feel that they have the right or even, I suppose, the, the, the need to, to speak over you and get their more important ideas out. And that's something I just became so accustomed to that it's a pleasure to be on a panel where nobody interrupts. I think in YA, and again, I think there's a culture in which people want to want everyone to be nice, and that can work in both ways. On the one hand, it can mean that on the surface there's this niceness. On the other hand, it can mean that certain kinds of discussions are hard to have because people don't want to be seen criticizing people. So discussions maybe about sexism or racism, racism especially right now. So that that come like this kind of like good and bad. So th- this idea that it's more honest to be blunt and insulting is not one I I, I like. Uh, on the other hand, if you never tell if you're not honest about things, you can't get the work done. But overall, my so far overall my experience in the YA field has been very positive. The most interesting thing to me that's different now, and this is true to some extent in science fiction fantasy as well, is the rise of the the writer as celebrity, not in the big ticket movie star celebrity, but in a smaller sense is that social media has created all these niches for small scale celebrity. And the whole treatment of people, of writers as celebrity is just like mind boggling to me um, because I see that all the time. You can see YA writers who curate their tumblers with professional level photographs on their tumblers. And so they've curated this whole persona for themselves and that just blows my mind. But it is, I mean, it is what it is. It's the new world. Social media has brought us closer together and, and in other ways, maybe a little farther apart. You said you went to San Diego Comic-Con again, and you were on this panel and nobody interrupted you? Or not me, not just me, anybody. Anybody. You interrupted anybody. There were six women and a moderator, all women, and nobody interrupted or talked over anyone. In the adult field, what's the best panel experience that you've ever had well i've had i've had a couple of really good panels i mean like last year at sasquon ken lu and i um did a dialogue on world building that was great because it was just the two of us talking to each other and then a room full of people listening and then asking questions i've actually been on some great panels but they involve people who listen a great panel involves listeners not talkers and and that that's basically what it comes down to, it, because listeners are genuinely interested in what the other people are saying. Oh, I was just on a great panel, the one I moderated at the Nebulas mm. with um, Ken Liu again, Henry Lian, 
uh, Nettie Okorafor, I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name right, and Daniel Jose Older. Uh, I can't remember what the, but anyway, it was, I don't want to say it was about diversity, but it was because it was better. It was about writing outside Anglo America. That was the title. And my goal with it was not to have, I've been on those panels where you have the talking head thing. It's like, okay, it's your turn to speak now. It's your turn to speak now. It's your turn to speak. And you go down the thing. Those panels almost without exception are boring because there's no interaction. And I've been on the panels where somebody is either insulting other people or they're talking over other people or they're interrupting people or somebody never gets to speak because somebody else is hogging the mic. And those are without exception, terrible panels. And I wanted this panel partly because I knew that it would be tricky, that that the subject matter might be construed as controversial. I wanted it to be a conversation, not a panel. And it took about 10 minutes, but at about the 10 minute mark, we got it. And it became a conversation where, and I didn't talk that much. I either fed questions or or made an occasional comment here or there, where they would listen to each other and then reflect off the things that other people had said. And when a panel works like that, it's great. Because then what happens is you're not just getting me talking about like I'm doing now, right? Blah, blah, blah. I'm talking about my thing, right? Which is fine. Sometimes that's what like those interviews with writers are good for they have where they have like some someone sitting on a chair and then another person sitting on a chair interviewing them at fantasy con in 2014 Kari sparing did that for me and she was phenomenal it really went well because she's read everything of mine and she's brilliant and she just asked me the right kind of questions but then she listened to my answers and would spring off them so but that was just about me right but on a panel it doesn't work like that if each individual doesn't like if you have four people up there it's cuz you want that interaction and you want people to listen and launch off what else is going on so the best panels have been that kind so and that's which is why i say listening is what matters most so following up from that then, because we're talking about kindness and interaction with people, do you remember what was possibly your kindest interaction with a fan? I, I would hope that they all were. I have a, a fear that someday I'm going to be kind of brusque or tired or rude to somebody who's read my books and to whom my books have meant a lot and To me, it is an incredible honor to know that people read my books and are affected by them. And it's also weird. I mean, when you really think about it, it's weird. This stuff comes in from my mind and I put it on about people who don't exist and things that have never happened. And yet, as a reader, I can be so deeply uh, affected by those things. And so I would hope that whenever I meet, I would hope that each interaction I have with a fan is that one, is that best one, and that they're always that best one, because that's what I want to give back to them for the gift that they've given me of reading my work. The benefit to me, in an odd way, of never having been like this massively blockbuster writer is that I'm so appreciative of my readers so appreciative of them. And I guess maybe if I had millions of them all over the world, I think you can still be super appreciative of all your readers under those circumstances. I sometimes see people who seem to kind of be a little, have become a little jaded about it all, but I'm not that person. I, and I've, cause I've never even had the option of being that person. I'm just, I'm just so grateful that people read my books. Well, we are grateful that you write them. Thank you. But I have one last question that I would like to ask, and we can't leave this podcast without having Uh-oh. it answered. So how do you address writing sex scenes? 
Because Renee and I have been talking about boning and fucking quite a lot in the past few podcasts, and we feel that you should participate in that conversation. So how do you address writing sex? We know that there are quite a few epic fantasies out there where there's very little sex, a lot of rape, and I have heard of people writing or not writing, reading other epic fantasy novels. And when there is a little bit of sex, they would go, oh my God, there is sex, how awful. And then when there's a lot of violence, no one would say anything. I want to ask you, how do you address sex in your books? Do you like to write about sex? I think that one of the most radical acts that we can take as writers, especially in US modern US culture, I can't speak about other cultures because this is the one I grew up in, One of the most radical acts we can make is to write about consensual, positive sex. This culture is so weird and in a way, and in a way, very creepy. And the, the idea that sexual threat against women, women being afraid, women being harmed, women being raped, women being murdered, that's all okay. That's dramatic. And that's quote unquote real. But then to say that two people or more, if that's your choice in, in the book, coming together in a positive way is unreal, is too much, is, is wish fulfillment. I mean, what kind of, what, what are we telling ourselves when we say that? It's first of all, it's so deeply that the, the level of misogyny that's kind of embedded in that is unexamined and people don't even want to examine it. And that's why they use the word, well, it's realism, right? But in fact, people have always, not, not all people, because we also don't deal that much with, with asexuality and aromance, people who, don't, who just aren't that interested in it. But, I'm gonna, but since the, the question's about sex, I'm going to deal with sex. The reality is, is that throughout the human experience, there's a reason that people get together because it feels good. And when people get together because it feels good and they're both enjoying themselves, think how amazing that is. Think what a positive statement that is. Think what an affirmation of joy and pleasure and life that is. And it's interesting because not every culture's literature sees two people coming together purely for reasons of sex to be a positive thing. In some cultures, you can, you can find some stories in which that is seen as just disruptive influence, that you should have other reasons for coming together. But those are cultural statements. People will seek each other out. For us to write it into our literature as a positive thing and for us to say, forget it, I'm not going to write about these other things. I'm going to make it positive. I'm going to put it out there and say to you that this matters enough to write about is crucial to kind of like rebuilding and reframing that old sense of misogyny that, that women are have to be under threat for it to be dramatic. I mean, it's one reason that I could never watch the HBO Game of Thrones is because it seems like 80% of any scene I have, I've seen a couple, a few episodes like in passing as I was walking in and out of the TV room because my husband has watched it. And it seems like in every scene, there's some kind of perceived sexual threat against women. It's maybe not worked on, but it's ominous, right? And that that's on the HBO showrunners, right? Those are the decisions those directors and writers are making. And what does that tell us? I, You know what? I'm tired of this idea that that was like the constant... 
I mean, in a way, yes, it is true that that all of us, if we go like down a back hallway at night in a building and we hear footsteps behind us, we're going to look over our shoulders, right, and make some decision. We have to do that because that's the culture we live in. So how much more important is it, is it for us as writers to focus on saying, listen, maybe two people can make a decision to come together. Um, maybe we can choose to write about sex in a positive way. And maybe we can say that this matters in the narrative and that this is an important part of human experience. It's as important as violence, because we really in, in the modern culture today, we really and increasingly I'm seeing it more use violence to propel plot much more so. It used to be in a film, like if someone slugged somebody toward the end of the film, that was like your big dramatic moment. Now, if you don't kill someone in the first scene, then mm-hmm. your book starts too slow. It, so there's a disconnect from the amount of, from, from violence um, as a, a thing that actually affects people, a thing that actually is the lived experience every single day for people, the, those poor, innocent people stuck in Syria, for example, who just trying to survive. That is not entertainment to me. Sex to me is, consensual sex to me is much more entertainment. Now, I personally do not write um, explicit scenes. I tend to like draw the curtain. Uh, The only really explicit scene I've ever written was the bonus chapter to Cold Fire. That was, and it was hard to write because I was kind of blushing while I wrote it. But actually in Black Wolves, there's, it's not super explicit, but it's pretty clear what's going on. I think that was a little more explicit than what I usually write. Because again, I wanted to show, I wanted to show that that mattered at that, that without that scene in Black Wolves, there's a sex scene in Black Wolves, that without that scene, that that matters to the progress of the story and to the progress of the relationship. And I do think these things matter more than we are willing to say. And also, as you said, there is that, that typical thing that if a woman has any kind of love story in her epic fantasy, then she's writing girly romance. If a dude does it, well, it's, people don't even notice it's easy to write violence and it's easy to write violence in a mediocre way that people will still absorb and not notice. It's hard to write good sex scenes. Congratulations, Anna. She's taken our playground argument about sex scenes and books and turned it into a serious answer and made us look like children. <laughs> no, no, no. unicorns no (laughs) you don't drink coffee so what do you drink what's your favorite drink of choice Uh, english breakfast tea with milk or no milk with milk and a little bit of sugar what's the best book that you've read in the last two months so i haven't actually read this cover to cover but the the most phenomenally interesting book i have uh, acquired and read at least part of in the last two months is picturing frederick douglas an illustrated biography of the 19th century's most photographed american and it's written by john stauffer zoe trod celeste marie bernier and someone a professor uh, of photography who i follow on twitter mentioned this book and it is exactly what it is it's it's all these pictures of Frederick Douglass across his lifetime and then a discussion of how uh, 
people turned them into um, lithographs and how he, and then in, in the early, how he came to start figuring out how to pose, you can see how he, how he was in his, the earliest photos. It takes some time for him to kind of figure out, oh, I could pose for these and present a certain aspect. And it discusses how Frederick Douglass realized the power of photography in, in a way to democratize information and the presentation of information. It's absolutely fascinating. Oh, and I, can, I make, can I throw out that I oh. recently read, I'm, I'm actually reading Ken Liu's The Wall of Storms, which is huge and really fascinating. I'm reading that right now. Uh, but I also um, just recently finally read Alison Croggan's The Bone Queen. It's just so beautifully written. It's just such a human book that I highly recommend it. If you could choose somebody to direct Court of Fives as a film, who would you choose? Ooh. Maybe um, Eva DuVernay. Yeah. Although I have to say my preference at this point, since no one will ever do Crown of Stars now, I don't think anyone will ever do another big ticket multi-season epic fantasy um, because I think in, it's not for another 10 or 20 years because Game of Thrones kind of like opened and closed that door all at the same time. I do think Crown of Stars would be great because it's got, it's like my kitchen sink book. You think that my other books are long and have a lot of stuff in them. They're nothing compared to that uh, seven volume monstrosity. But um, I would love to see Spirit Walk not as film so much but as a you could do a couple films i guess but i would love to see it as like a series netflix know. please call kate yes. elliott please netflix somebody somebody sent netflix an email start a petition talk to us a bit about your upcoming book poison blade the sequel to court of fives i love the ending and i hope the ending makes everyone cry you know my biggest thing about so court of fives the whole the, working on this trilogy has been has been fascinating to me because writing young adult, I have to fight the two things that are I struggle with most. One is pacing, um, and it forces me to, to work on pacing. And the other one is that I have to keep cutting detail. I love detail. You know I love detail. You guys know I love detail. Um, and I have to keep cutting it while still keeping the right things so that you it's not doesn't become a generic culture. With each book, because it's a trilogy, my goal has been to make the pacing stronger with each subsequent book and the stakes higher with each subsequent book. And with Poison Blade, because it's the middle book, my goal was to make things happen in Poison Blade so that rather than being a placeholder between the beginning and the end, there are things that happen there that change the course of the story. And I think I succeeded. Kate, where can people find you on social media? <laughs> right now I have all my social media blocked, but I'm on uh, just temporarily because I have a blog tour starting on the 8th. Twitter is where you can most often find me at Kate Elliott SFF. I'm on Facebook where I probably drop in a couple times a week. Um, I have a lovely group of people there. And the reason that I don't just drop Facebook is because I have a lovely group of people following there who I really value. And, you know, I have been on Tumblr in the past, but I haven't been recently because I just haven't had time. And I do have a blog called I Make Up Worlds. Okay, Anna, it's time for Rex. What do you have for us this week? Avocados. I like avocados. 
I love avocados. And I only recently discovered this truth about myself because growing up in Brazil, we don't eat avocados as a savory dish. Avocados are fruit. So you eat them with sugar or as part of a smoothie for breakfast. And I always hated it. Cue 40 years later. And one day I decided to have guacamole and my life changed. Now I eat avocados every single day, at least one of them, with rice and beans, with quinoa and beans, with chickpeas and beans, or just as a guacamole on top of toast. So my recommendation is avocados with a lot of lemon. You had an avocado enlightenment. I mean, I know they put avocados in like power smoothies, which are yeah. which are sweet because the sugar overpowers the avocado, so it's just yeah. like adding nutrients. But I've never heard of them being eaten like as with sugar. Yeah. yeah, you just mash them, put a little bit of sugar, and eat it as a dessert. What? Well, that was how I felt when I discovered that you could eat it with salt and lime. I've never eaten an avocado with anything other than savory stuff. Yeah, I actually asked um, Brazilian Twitter the other day, and they were like, yeah, yeah, we eat it with sugar. It's not something that my family made up. Congratulations <laughs> on discovering the versatility of the avocado. I know, it's so amazing. With sandwiches and salads, what? It's amazing, I love it. So tell us, what about your recommendation for today? So I finally caught up with the rest of the world and saw Zootopia. So did you like it? Yeah, I really, really did. I thought the animation was beautiful. I really liked the storyline. And as predicted, like I went into that movie going, I'm going to come out shipping these two animals. <laughs> and I'm going to want Fick. I was not wrong. Did you find Fick? I did find Fick. I knew you would, because who wouldn't ship those two? The movie was just so funny and delightful. And I liked that it handled... It's parallel for racism, and it wasn't perfect, obviously, but I liked that it gave this dynamic to have those discussions on that level with animals. I thought it was pretty good for what it was. I did not see the ending coming, even though my partner called it from, like, halfway through the movie. He always calls things, doesn't he? he? Yes. I was like, how do you... You don't even watch that much TV or read that much? How do you know all the answers? When I write my book, if he can figure it out too easily, I'm going to be like, this is not good enough. Gotta go back. (laughs) Gotta go by the drawing board. Gotta go fix it. So, yeah, I really liked Judy, and I really want there to be a sequel, because I just loved that little rabbit. I know she's so cute, and he was awesome too. And he was a little when he was a little fox. Oh, they told him he was an animal. They're gonna bone. It's gonna be great. Oh, you and your bone issues. <laughs> Listen, there's some thick out there. Oh no, I don't want to know. Please don't tell me. I don't want to know. It looks like we're gonna have to do another poll. <laughs> Will all of our polls be about bony? Finger happy hour, where we debate whether characters fuck every single episode.
Anna, we reached the end of another episode. Hooray! Hooray! Thank you for recording with me. Thank you for always talking about boning. This episode of Finger Happy Hour was brought to you by fucking. <laughs> Special thanks this week to the lovely, charming, brilliant Kate Elliott. That's beautiful. And she also writes about fucking. Our music this week is by Foxcat Games. And instrumentals are by Chuki Music on YouTube. The cool art you see when you download our podcast was made by Ira, and you can commission them at justira.tumblr.com or ping them on Twitter at It's Just Ira. If you liked this episode, we always appreciate a signal boost via retweets or reblogs, especially this episode, to honor our esteemed guest, Kate Elliott, Master Storyteller. And if you want more of us between episodes, you can catch us on Twitter at Fangirl Podcasts. I'm on Twitter at Renee. And I at Book Smugglers. And as always, Space Bees, thanks for listening. See you next episode. Bye! So, you know, dude was good looking, I gotta say. She's attracted to Frederick Douglass. <laughs> <laughs> Intellectual men who are frowning a lot, man, that's my thing.